I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 18, the first 20 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, December the 1st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are in continuing our look at the book of Amos, chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, also in 2 Peter 3, first, uh, verses 11 to 18, and then in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. So remember <clears throat> that what has happened is, is that uh, in the Amos passage, the Lord's announced um, judgment against the northern kingdom. And so today where he's going to continue. Um, and basically, if you know the old, I don't know, joke, proverb, whatever, about the flood coming and um, <clears throat> a man finally ended up, because the floodwaters kept rising, he ended up going on top of his house. And, and first a boat came along, a little rowboat came along and they said, do you need help? And he said, no, the Lord's going to save me. And then the next one, because it got higher even, he's on the roof, and now we've got a, a motorboat coming by and says, do you need help? And he said, no, the Lord's going to take care of me. And uh, ultimately then a helicopter came by and offered to help, and he said, no, the Lord's going to help me, and ended up drowning. And in heaven, he said, um, I thought you were going to save me. And the Lord's answer was, well, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What did you want me to do? And so that's essentially the same thing you're getting ready to hear in Amos. What, what he's going to say, though, is, is that, that I did these things that harmed you, that, that created difficulty in your life, and, and yet you kept, and the things that I said that I would do, and, and yet you continued to move in the wrong direction. You continue to move away from me, not towards me. You, you never seem to get the message. And it's what we see in the book of the Revelation. It's just partial destruction of, of things, including the heavenly bodies. But you see these partial destructions, and the intention is to get people's attention and get them to repent, and it doesn't work. Here we see that same principle playing out in this passage from Amos. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and others you had nothing to eat, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I'd send rain on one city and no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you and was as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So what he said is, I've tried in a million different ways to get your attention, and yet you wouldn't turn to me. You wouldn't come back. It's a mercy of God that he sent these droughts and these famines and the mildews and the blights and all that other stuff. It was a, a, a way of getting their attention and saying, you're headed in the wrong direction. I'm trying to call you to account for your sins, and I'm trying to do it the easy way by making it difficult for you, not coming to uh, engage in judgment with you. But that time is done because you didn't pay attention to the signs you were given. And it's a legitimate question that I think we have to answer in the West right now. What, what have we done with what we've been given? Have we produced fruit? And do we stand in a place of judgment? And are the things that we're seeing right now sufficient to get us to turn to him in our moment of difficulty here? And if not, then woe be unto us. I mean, there's just no other way to get around it. And that's what Jesus says in the gospel lesson today. This gospel lesson is the parable that sort of ends the whole thing in so many ways because it's so obvious what he's talking about here that nobody questions where he's coming from. He says, here another parable. Remember, he's in the temple uh, the last week of his life. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You notice he's done everything he can to make this thing pr- productive He's protected it with the wall around it and even put the wine press in there <clears throat> so that they could take care of the harvest right there in the vineyard itself. So everything that was necessary and required to turn a profit on this thing was already done. All you got to do is tend it. That's all he said. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. They would have owed him a portion of the harvest as their rent. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So at some level, they believe that that what's happened here is, is that the man has died and that the son's here now. and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They, the people standing there, said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's a question actually. That, that's not a statement that it's marvelous in their eyes. The, the, it's a question is the way that it's posed there. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I, in case you missed the application, Jesus says, this is about Israel. It's about the failure to produce fruit for the kingdom. 
It's it's about the failure to render that fruit to the one who planted the vineyard. And it's interesting because it follows directly on, remember yesterday or day before, I can't remember which it was, that the um, Jesus cursed the fig tree before he went into the city of Jerusalem because it was failing to produce the fruit. So there's the acted out parable, and now here's the parable itself where Jesus says, you're, you're not producing fruit, I'm going to take it away and give it to another. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. What didn't really require the Holy Spirit in this particular case to understood that the parable spoke about them. And though they were, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Remember yesterday, he had confronted them with who do you think John the Baptist was? Where did his authority come from to baptize and preach the things that he did? And so they, they said, we, we can't really answer that. That way we can't say that authority came from God because the people believe he's a prophet. And so we have a problem because we didn't believe in him. And if we say that, that his authority came from man, then we're denying that he's a prophet and the people will be really upset about that. So they had a conundrum that was unresolvable. And so here, Jesus has gone on and just straightforward hit them in in the uh, between the eyes with the reality of, okay, this is what's going to happen. And they recognize, they see themselves in the parable, but they're afraid of the people. It's one of the things I think that we need to be aware of is the, the power that the people have. And we can resist things, we can stand up to things, we can say no to things, and, and that power comes in exercising the free right of resistance. And so the, the people could have pushed back against them, against the Pharisees, and stopped this whole thing. So the Pharisees had to cook up a way, the Pharisees and the scribes and everybody else, had to cook up a way to get Jesus away from the people in order that they could try him and then control the narrative such that the people then came to disbelieve in Jesus by the time the public trial happened. And it's a pattern for the way things go. And so sometimes we have to keep our eyes open to the pattern. Wait a minute, did they, has this been cooked up behind the scenes somewhere? Is there something here that I'm missing that there's, there's more than meets the eye, but we get caught up in a mob mentality and we, we end up being on the wrong side of history. <laughs> like the people who are clamoring later in this same week for the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we have to be careful. We have to be, we have to be those people who reserve judgment until we know everything that we need to know. We need to stand back and look with... Um, with a little bit of suspicious glance when things seem a little too neat, a little too convenient, and fit a narrative a little too closely. And I think if we've learned anything over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, whatever that time period is, I mean, going back to the whole war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all that, what have we learned? What have we learned since, for instance, let's just say um, 9-11? Are we freer people? Do we have more peace? Do we have more freedoms? Do we have less freedom? Something it, it looks askew, and we need to be able to look at that. No matter who's in power, we need to say, well, wait a minute. We might like the idea of our side having that lever, but ultimately the other side's going to have that lever too, and we need to be careful about how we do that, and we need to pay attention to what's going on. 
need to keep our eyes open. That's what Jesus always wanted us to do. In the Second Peter passage, he says, since all these things, he's talking about the heavenlies, the earth, and uh, all of creation, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's a pretty graphic image that Peter has there, and um, you know that, that's the way everybody, I think, expects things to end, actually. If, if, you know, even if from a cosmological perspective, that's the way we would expect it to end, is then when a supernova explodes and destroys everything. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, so what, what is it going to look like now for you to live a life of holiness and godliness, knowing that where we are is temporary? And as I've said before, my mentor um, had a saying, time is short, hell is hot, and the stakes are high. And, and that's exactly what Peter's saying here, is, is that who are you supposed to be in this interim period while we wait for and pray for the coming of the kingdom with the knowledge that all these things that are will be dissolved, which is sort of an Ecclesiastes take on on life on this planet, which is to say that ultimately you've got to set your sights above the sun in order to, to live a life this is going to have eternal significance because all this stuff will pass away. So work for the stuff that's eternal. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And Jesus tells multiple parables where an owner goes away and then comes back. And then what is what does he see when he gets back? Have the servants kept the house? Have they prepared everything? Have they took, taken care of things the way they would have if he had been there? And And Peter is saying the same thing here. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And we can, we can do all these other things. We can make things look good. But the other side of it is, are we at peace when he comes? And that's, a, that's the peace that comes with faith and in specifically faith in the sovereignty of God and that the faith in the Son of God and that his sacrifice was sufficient that I could stand in the day of judgment. That's where peace comes from. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So in other words, what he's saying is is the fact that God hasn't come back um, in judgment should tell you something about this is grace. This is it's patience of God waiting for sin to fill the earth. But but what we're to do in the meantime is to sow not tares but seeds. We should, we're to be sowing wheat and see, reaping the harvest of uh, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ during that time. He said, there's some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And this is an interesting way of ending this sentence, as they do the other scriptures. So he's saying that that Paul's writings to the churches that they're aware of are scripture. So there's a consciousness of writing the New Testament in real time. And he is affirming Paul's letters as Scripture, not just random letters that somebody's written. So in doing so, Peter is also affirming Paul's apostleship, because they're to obey what Paul has written. 
You, therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Because people would come into the conclusion that Paul was an antinomian. He was against the law because he was saying that people didn't need to be circumcised. And so when he would write these things, then people would say, oh, then we need to reject the law completely because it has no force and authority because of the gospel that Jesus has already paid the price. And so then people could take that up and they could become antinomians. They could, they could say, well, it doesn't matter what I do and how I live. And Peter is saying it matters a lot how you live because you need to be found without spot or blemish when he returns. And he says, Paul says the same thing. These are, we're not preaching two different gospels. We're not telling you, giving you mixed messages. Just because people misinterpret it and twist it towards their own ends doesn't mean that's what Paul actually said or meant. Because Paul was not an antinomian. That's, that's a lie. But it's the way some people would interpret it because he spoke so much of grace and he moved away from the idea that you had to be circumcised in order to enter the kingdom of God. And so people misinterpret that, that as license. And that's what he's speaking about here. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We need to keep our eyes open. We need to keep our eyes open for false teachers, false prophets in the church. Those people who would tell us that we have license to live any way that we can, that it doesn't matter, that it's all about free grace. Well, it is about free grace, but it's about repentance. It's about recognizing the need of a Savior. It's about valuing the cross of Christ. It's about valuing his righteousness and saying that righteous life does matter, and the proof of that is actually the resurrection. He was resurrected from the dead because of his righteousness. He was, he was put on the cross and crucified because of sin, not his, ours. And so why would righteous lives not then be the fruit of conversion? 